This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I'm the creator of FinTech Takes, and join me as always, my friend and fellow FinTech analyst, newsbreaker, expert extraordinaire, Jason Mikula. Jason, how are you? I am doing pretty well. Finally back at home. You know, as listeners or readers might know, I was in Mexico for, it felt like a really long time, but it was a bit over two weeks. And in a callback to our last episode, I learned too late that a friend of my partner's basically had an extra ticket to see Taylor Swift in Mexico City. What? If I was willing to basically supervise her sister at the conference, at the concert. But I had to get back here to uh, the Netherlands, so I, I missed my chance to see Taylor. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, it's, I mean, a spare ticket to a Taylor Swift concert is like, I don't even know what to say about that. That's just like something that like, is not likely to occur again. So my apologies, buddy. I am sorry that you missed your opportunity. It'll have to be next time. Crow understands that certain moments matter more for fintech companies, whether it's partnering with a bank, moving into a new market, or going public. Visit www.crow.com fintech to discover how Crow can help fintech companies like yours find value in volatility. It'll be next time. Well, I mean, she keeps adding dates. Is she coming to the Netherlands? Probably. I'm just notoriously bad at like keeping tabs on any sort of pop culture event. So I'm sure she's coming and I'm sure it's too late to get tickets. It's funny you say that because my wife, who is the bigger of the Taylor Swift fans in our household, although I'm rapidly approaching her level of fandom as well, she has actually started sort of following the concert before we even went sort of the same way that other people follow sports, which I found really interesting. But it's like every morning you go on Instagram and you can sort of look at the highlights of the concert and the specific songs that were played that night. And so when she said that, I was like, oh, that makes sense. It's sports. And so like now, like with that proper like frame of mind, yeah, this is like the Golden State Warriors in, you know, 2017, where like if you're lucky enough to see them, that's great. But it's like kind of one in a lifetime sort of experiences. So maybe she'll swing back around and you'll get your chance. Fingers crossed. You may not be good at keeping up with pop culture, but you are good at keeping up with fintech. So as we typically do on this podcast, we're just going to hit some of the highlights from the last month or so. And Jason, I will let you go first. Yeah. First topic, Neobank Current has launched a credit building card structured as a secured charge card, which is issued by Cross River Bank on the Visa network. I mean, I think one of the interesting characteristics of this product is that it enables users to spend against a single available balance. So both their, I know we're not, probably not supposed to use the word checking in 2023, but their checking account slash this secured card are running off the same balance, which is actually a neat bit of engineering and UX enabled by their tech stack. Comparable products from Chime and Vero you know, functionally, a user has to shuttle that money into the secured card before they can spend it. So a little bit of a streamlined UX here. You know, that said, and I know Alex, you and I have talked about this before, there are limitations on credit building just as a feature in general, whatever the form factor is. So I mean, one, 
it doesn't tend to be that helpful for major users who've had major derogatories in the past, charge-offs, bankruptcy, etc. The one positive trade line rarely is enough to offset somebody who's actually had serious problems in the past. It tends to be best suited to users who are new to credit and looking to establish that positive payment history. And it kind of dilutes, pollutes the reliability of data in the credit bureau. So I know we've talked about this before with Chime and Vero, where the question, you know, if you're a credit risk underwriter looking at one of these customers is how predictive is this payment behavior that they had with current or any of these other products, to be fair? Yeah. How predictive of their future repayment behavior is that? And I haven't seen any sort of like rigorous academic or publicly shared analysis, but I think a reasonable inference given the structure of the product is that a user's behavior here on this sort of secured or pseudo-secured card may not generalize to how they behave when they have a traditional unsecured credit card or other debt obligation, personal loan, whatever. Another part of this, which I think ex explains some of the appeal to the companies issuing them, is they get more interchange. It always goes back to interchange. A charge card gets you know a higher revenue per swipe, which provides a clear, clear motivation to get users to spend through this card versus a vanilla debit card. One last comment before I let you chime in. Chime in. <laughs> that was not even on purpose. You know, we don't really have a ton of data for how users perform on these cards. The one data point I've been able to locate is Vero, since it is a bank and does file call reports. And it would appear that this sort of pseudo-secured structure doesn't fully de-risk the issuers from losses. So, I mean, Vero had something like three-ish percent charge-offs. It's unclear if that's from fraud, it's from bonafide credit risk, from some other underlying problem. But just because it's secured doesn't immunize the issuers from experiencing losses here. So, I mean, with my uh, monologue out of the way, what did you make of this product launch? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you hit all the high points that I was thinking about. I mean, it's technically, I think, an impressive way of implementing a credit builder card, as you covered. And I think that's kind of a pattern with current a bit is they're not always the first to market with these relative to some of the other big neobanks, but their implementations tend to be a little bit more sort of thoughtful and have some kind of nice tweaks to it. So I do think that is a good point. Generally speaking, though, what you said is exactly right, right? I mean, it's really difficult to build a credit builder card that is both customer friendly and effective as a way to generate reliable repayment data that can be modeled against for credit risk. And I haven't seen any public data points on that yet, but I have had some conversations privately with different credit underwriters at banks and other fintech companies. And what I have heard is that generally speaking, the sort of best practice is for any of these companies that have a credit builder product that's designed in such a way to basically kind of practically speaking, eliminate the odds of someone missing a payment or going delinquent relative maybe to fraud, which is something we can circle back to, that the best practice is to basically exclude those trade lines from the calculation. That to me is the thing that I just worry a lot about with these products because to your point, obviously they're attractive from an interchange perspective. They also, from what I hear from all the companies that launch them, it's like the number one feature or product that customers ask for. That's what I continually hear over and over again. And I get it, right? Like credit building is sort of a mystery box for consumers, particularly young consumers. 
There's not really a clear way to get started. Secured cards that were traditionally offered by banks suck. And we're sort of marketed as like, you're a loser if you have to use this product. And so I totally get the appeal of them from a consumer standpoint. But the thing I would worry about would be, okay, we've helped this consumer get a 690 FICO score or a 710 FICO score, whatever it is. And they walk into a different bank or lender trying to get some other product and they get declined and they're a little confused maybe by that because like, well, I thought I had a good credit score. And the lender's like, eh, it's not quite as good maybe as you think. Or the sort of credit score that you're seeing is not exactly the same as the model that we're using to actually underwrite your risk. And so that risk of long-term confusion at the expense of like short-term value and being able to sort of show someone you're helping them build their credit score, that sort of trade-off is one that I'm not sure I'm comfortable with, although I certainly understand why these companies are doing that. On the point about Varo's card, that 3% number kind of breaks my brain, honestly, because all of these products, whether it's sort of really seamless the way that Kern has designed it or slightly more manual the way that Chime and Varo have it, they're all designed to basically mean that like the money that's set aside is the money that you've spent, which is the balance that you have on your card. And they really strongly encourage, although they don't require because that's not against that's not allowed by the law, they all strongly encourage auto pay. And I think all of them have auto pay opt-in rates of like 90 plus percent. And so it would seem like structurally impossible almost for credit risk to account for that 3%, which does make me sort of think it might be more related to fraud. And I think that's the other story with any of the credit or lending products that these neobanks get into, right, is you're used to dealing with fraud when it's not really your problem overly, right? I mean, like the limitations of what you're going to get hit with for fraud if you're offering deposit products, it's annoying, but it's not going to like break you. As you start to tiptoe into credit and lending, and I know these companies are also getting into like short-term lending and cash advance and other types of products, like beware because fraud when you offer a lending product is a very different problem than fraud when you offer a deposit product. And I think that's another lesson we're going to see these companies learn. I think to reiterate one point that you made around the discrepancy between what users might think their credit score is versus their actual ability to get approved, I think it's a really important one. I mean, this has always been a problem to a certain extent with the proliferation of Credit Karma and similar services where, okay, Credit Karma says I have a 740, but it's a 740 Vantage 3 educational model, blah, 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 blah. Whereas in reality, when they go to apply for a product, one, the lender might be using a different model altogether. And two, and I'm pretty sure this has been the case everywhere I've ever worked. In addition to using an out-of-the-box FICO or Vantage, they typically have their own hard cuts, their own heuristics in that credit policy. And so, Alex, to your point, if these trade lines are coded on the Bureau as being credit builder or whatever, and you know I'm the credit risk management team, and I'm deciding I'm going to set aside those trade lines, you know, it's entirely possible this applicant then fails the hard cuts and it doesn't matter what their FICO score may or may not be because they've yeah. already hit this tripwire before going into sort of the main model. So yeah, I think, again, this is, to be fair to current, this is not like specifically a problem to them. It's true of any of these sort of secured or pseudo-secured cards. 
credit building loans can have similar effects, but it does risk a situation where users think their creditworthiness is one thing, but their ability to get approved for stuff maybe hasn't actually moved that much. I totally agree with that. I noticed this drift that's happening slowly between the models that I know lenders are using to make credit decisions, which can't be bad, right? I mean, like at the end of the day, the lender's only responsibility when they're making a credit decision is, well, really two things, to follow the law and to make the absolute best credit decision possible to minimize their losses and maximize their profitability. And so if they have to tweak the standard model, if they have to say, hey, we're going to put in a rule that says any trade lines generated by these three companies, because we know what they're doing, are just going to get excluded. That's what they're going to do. And it's not personal. It's not something where they're trying to sort of wreck the future of these users, but that might end up happening just as sort of a happenstance of it. And I know, kind of to your point, Current is aware of this. I think they're doing everything they can within the confines of their design to solve for this. They're working very closely with TransUnion, which is the bureau that they're reporting to initially, and then they're going to be adding the other two bureaus over time. So I know all the companies that are in this space get this problem. It's just, it seems like the incentive is we want to design the most customer-friendly product that's going to keep people out of debt. And if we have to take the risk of polluting the bureaus a bit to do that, at least in the short term, that's what we're going to do. And I get the business rationale for the decision, but it does sort of present some of those longer-term risks. Should we jump to the next story? Let's do it. Okay. So I will take this one. This is all about Plaid. So may have seen a couple of weeks ago, a couple different announcements. And it was kind of funny because all the companies sort of announced these things a little bit differently. But the net of it is that Plaid has struck a partnership with Pinwheel and with Atomic, which are both payroll API companies, which do roughly the same thing that Plaid does, except the data that they go out and aggregate is payroll data sourced from employers and payroll systems. The partnership was sort of primarily to do two things. One, Pinwheel and Atomic are going to be essentially supplementing the payroll data that Plaid has and the non-payroll data that Plaid has that feeds into their income verification product. And so income verification was a product that Plaid launched a year ago, maybe a little bit longer ago now. And it was one of the first products they launched as a part of their own entry into the payroll space. And it's a really lucrative area. Anyone who knows kind of the sort of backstory here knows that Equifax is the 800-pound gorilla here. They have a huge business that's pretty much solely built around sort of employment data and income verification data, much of which they sell to mortgage lenders for sort of absurd prices. And so there's a whole sort of cottage industry that's been formed around trying to cut into Equifax's margin for their workforce solutions business. And what's interesting is that the payroll API companies that are really going after income verification really hard and making a lot of progress there, that's not Pinwheel or Atomic. And so my takeaway from this part of the partnership was that Pinwheel and Atomic said, look, this isn't really an area we are trying to compete super strongly in. So why don't we partner with Plaid, help them compete in this space and kind of monetize that aspect of our business a little bit differently. The other element to this partnership was that Plaid has sort of fully killed its very short-lived deposit, direct deposit switch product, which it had initially launched even before its income verification product as a part of its entry into the payroll space. It very quickly pulled back on its deposit switch product 
immediately after launching it and kind of put it back on the shelf. And I think this is an indication that that product is now dead because they are now going to be officially referring anyone who's interested in direct deposit switching and automating that process to Pinwheel. So Pinwheel is now the sort of partner for that. And it was really interesting to watch the companies announce this because Pinwheel put out a whole big thing announcing that they were going to be doing this, that they were the preferred partner for Plaid for direct deposit switching. They were going to be providing payroll data to help with its income verification product. Plaid did not go to great lengths to announce that. They announced more of a sort of generic update to their income verification product, where they actually sort of talked more about the role that they have in helping to reduce fraud as a part of that process with their fraud and ID verification capabilities, the role that bank data can play in driving income verification, and then just a little throwaway line on how they were also sort of beefing up the payroll data that was feeding into their income verification product. So I think Plaid was trying to sort of downplay the overall significance of the story, but my takeaway from it was that if you think back to the Plaid Volcano, which was the famous back of a napkin drawing that showed up in the DOJ lawsuit against Visa for their attempted acquisition of Plaid, that volcano basically indicated that the game plan at Plaid would be to start with a base level of data connectivity and coverage, but then to build value-added services on top of that, payments, lending, verification of other details, just all kinds of other businesses, fraud, ID verification, stuff that would be more of a threat to folks like Visa. And I think what this is evidence of, Jason, is that Plaid is very much focused on building up those upper layers of the volcano. Obviously, we've seen a lot of product announcements come from them on payments, fraud, ID verification. They've made acquisitions in those spaces. I think they're going to push more into lending in the relative near future. And I guess this is maybe an indication that they're prioritizing that and maybe not trying to prioritize continuing to build out the very bottom level of that stack. And if payroll data is something they can get through partnerships or through investing in companies, maybe they'll do that to maintain that coverage, but to not try to own as much of that layer and to build up. What was your kind of takeaway from the story? Okay, I have one bone to pick because yes, I was Googling plaid volcano while you were talking and I think you have the order upside down because it has bank oh. connections are like the very peak of the volcano and then everything goes down below the water from there. I got that. I feel like an iceberg metaphor could have worked a little bit better than the volcano, but it's less... Well, it's funny you say that because the volcano is a strange metaphor the more that you think about it because iceberg is the more common one. But thank you for that correction. That is very good to know. Okay, the record's been corrected. Yeah, I, I did have to Google it. I did not know that from memory. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I would largely concur with your analysis here, right? I mean, the amount of time, effort, money, engineering hours to build out what Plaid originally built, which is connectivity to bank data, and sort of running that again in the payroll space, which I'll admit I'm a little bit less familiar, but I've heard the argument that it's more complicated for a number of reasons, right? There's more parties involved. It's not just person and bank. It's person, payroll processor, employer, maybe another fourth party in there. So complexity is higher. It's highly fragmented. So yeah, you have your giant players like your ADP or paychecks or newer ones like Augusto, but there are like literally thousands and thousands of mid and small payroll processors. 
And, you know, to your point, it may be that Plaid decided to prioritize these other value-added services below the water of the volcano, if we're still using this metaphor, instead of working on building out this connectivity that arguably Pinwheel Atomic and others have a significant head start on. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I'm glad that you highlighted the sort of different nature of payroll, right? Because I think a, a naive take on this would be, well, why can't Plaid continue to do this? Because they've already got really good at building out all of these integrations and doing all of this work. Doesn't that sort of skill set just transfer over nicely to all these other areas? And I think the answer is no, right? It doesn't really transfer over all that well to the payroll space. I would hazard a guess that this is sort of an indication that they, not just recently, but probably for the last year, a couple of years, have sort of fallen behind some of the more focused providers in terms of building out that coverage and getting those relationships. And sometimes it's like you have to have specific business agreements with it. Another difference between payroll and bank data is the payroll companies monetize this, right? And so the banks don't want to give the data up, but it's not like they charge consumers or others for getting access to that data. The payroll companies view it as like their data and a monetizable asset. And so you have to pay for it. So it's like, it's a whole different set of constraints. And I think the other thing that sort of overlays all of this is we are eventually going to get rules from the CFPB mandating data sharing via Dodd-Frank 1033. When that eventually happens, and again, knock on wood for when that eventually happens, when we have that, I think that will be a big shift for all the providers in the space, right? Because for a long, long time, you had to build coverage and connectivity to even be in the game, because otherwise you couldn't do it. And you had to sort of twist some arms occasionally to get that coverage and connectivity. You had to do some stuff that was a little, maybe not totally the right thing to do. Now, at least for core bank deposit data and transactional data, everyone's going to have to play by the same set of rules. And so having coverage and connectivity in that world won't be, I think, quite the same moat. And so I do think strategically, it's smart on the part of Plaid to go, look, we have to build up the stack or down the volcano to really sort of protect our business and to continue to expand our margins. Because this core thing that we made a lot of money on initially, that's becoming more of a commodity. And so I do think just generally the the timing around 1033 is probably driving this sort of strategic shift. And if they have to kind of get support, because again, 1033 is only going to cover bank deposit transaction data, at least to start. The CFPB is probably going to widen the scope of that over time. But all of these other areas that fall outside of that, the choice for Plaid is, do we want to go do all of that yucky work again? Or maybe do we want to do this through partners? And so, yeah, I think that's probably going to be more the modus operandi and be curious to see how this ecosystem sort of evolves from there. I mean, I will go out on a limb and throw a totally irresponsible speculation, which is, love it. Could Plaid acquire one of these payroll API companies? I mean, particularly given sort of the stress on the wider fintech ecosystem, VC funding, et cetera, et cetera. Like, could the time be right to pick up a little tuck-in acquisition and just buy that infrastructure? I mean, Plaid, and I'm not even sure I noticed this at the time, but acquired Cognito, which is in that IDV space. And again, you see a similar story where it's like, okay, did Plaid want to go and recreate all of that? What are the cliches we use? Bare metal, like, infrastructure? Yeah. Or it's like, go and buy that, bundle it, 
together with the capabilities they already have and have a sum that's greater than the whole of its parts or whatever whole that's greater than the sum of its parts yeah no absolutely i think that's right and uh yeah i mean they've definitely become much more acquisitive over the last few years and i think it's largely what you're saying which is like we have the resources to be able to do this if it's the right price but then right price is a great concept now that everyone's sort of having to look for whatever exit they can find and I also think that they very much view it as our strength is the network that we have and like, honestly, the brand that we have. And so if we can plug things into that network and that brand that strengthen it, but that we don't have to build it ourselves and we can import like the talent who really knows how to run those particular parts of those businesses, that's a much more sort of efficient way to continue to kind of stretch out their lead in terms of that network and the strength of that network. So I, I very much agree and would not at all be surprised if we saw some consolidation and some acquisitions in that space as well. Crow gets fintech. For decades, Crow specialists have watched this industry evolve and helped companies navigate the moments that matter most, whether finding new sources of funding to fuel growth or responding to complex regulations. Visit www.crow.com fintech to find out how Crow works with fintech companies like yours to help uncover value in volatility. Should we move along to the next one? Yeah, so you broke a little news recently. Why don't we talk about that one? Yeah, so what Alex is referring to is a rather lengthy piece about Lineage Bank and Synapse and sincere apologies to anyone who's Sunday morning I disrupted <laughs> taking time to read that. Don't apologize for length, Jason, because if you apologize, I have to apologize because all mine are crazy long. So do not apologize. It was a wonderfully length article. And I did get to work in not one, but two country music references, which I was very, very proud of. But all joking aside, I mean, the short synopsis here, there's really two different stories. One is about Lineage, which until the beginning of 2021 was known as Citizens Bank and Trust, and one is about Synapse. And the short version is, you know, Lineage, FKA, Citizens, was the smallest bank in Tennessee, about $25 million in assets. A family with a long history of working and founding, selling banks in Tennessee, bought citizens, grew it incredibly quickly. I mean, if memory is serving right, like 790% growth in assets over the span of about two years. And part of what enabled them to do that was cheap deposits sourced through BAS relationships, both Synapse and Singterra. But from the sources I spoke with, Synapse sounded like a more significant risk in terms of the things we talk about here, due diligence, third-party risk management, as well as asset liability management. So, I mean, yeah. Lineage remains quite a small bank, but it has a outsized share of deposits apparently coming from these BAS partners which exposes it to the kinds of risks we've seen the Fed very recently talk about in its novel activities supervision program. So, I mean, this is clearly something that regulators have their minds on, in addition to all the other risks we've seen highlighted previously, BSA AML with Blue Ridge, fair lending stuff with Cross River. Another story in this sort of general wheelhouse that came out last week was around Goldman, 
getting a warning from the Fed regarding its banking as a service activities. So specifically talking about Goldman's transaction banking unit and risks in compliance from some of the higher risk slash non-bank customer, meaning not existing customers of Goldman who are on that platform. So, I mean, it certainly seems like there's more shoes to drop, more dominoes to fall in this sort of bass regulatory space. And I'm interested to see how it continues to develop. What have you been hearing? What are you thinking? Similar stuff to you. I mean, I think that this is another indicator that I think Synapse is probably the most sort of aggressively creative of all of the Bass platforms in terms of growth, sourcing deals, some of the insights in your piece around how they were actually using the sort of dependence that the bank had on their deposits as a way to sort of strong arm the bank was kind of alarming to me to see, but it kind of speaks to the risk that you're talking about, right? Which is like, from a regulator's perspective, the question is, well, if I'm looking at a bank and they're doing BAS, how should I think about those BAS deposits? And it's really interesting because there's this longstanding sort of rule and association that regulators have with brokered deposits in banking. And so the principle was always that if you as a bank went out and went through these like third-party brokers to go get a bunch of like CDs or other sort of very like hot money by offering a high rate, then you were going to bring that money into your bank and you were going to do something irresponsible with it, right? It was kind of like if you had a friend who went to the bank to get a personal loan and had a trip booked to Las Vegas like the next weekend, like that's like not a really good sign. It was uh, for money 2020. It's not to gamble. Yeah, it's like that. It has nothing to do with gambling, I promise. But like um, there, there is a strain of essentially deposit-fueled gambling type behavior that you see in banking, particularly among community banks, particularly it sounds like among this family, who I'm not sure why Tennessee regulators keep letting them come near banks, but that's sort of a separate issue. But I think the thing that's really interesting about Bass is that you don't have to pay the same thing for Bass, right? And so like the to, to go back to my analogy, you know, instead of having to go get a personal loan from a bank where you're paying interest on that loan and then going to Vegas and gambling it all away, this is more equivalent to like just getting someone to loan you a bunch of money for free with no interest rate and then being able to go gamble with it. And so I think it really speaks to this sort of different nature of banking as a service that most of the deposits that come through banking as a service are either low cost or in a lot of cases, just sort of sticky retail, non-interest bearing deposits. Those are an extraordinarily valuable asset in banking, particularly right now. And the question, if you're a regulator, is does the nature of just sourcing those deposits, does that indicate the bank is maybe going to try to take some of these risks like Lineage seems to be doing? Is it something I need to worry about in terms of the leverage that the platform helping them source deposits now has over the bank? Is it something I need to worry about in terms of, yeah, I'm getting all these deposits, but the bank doesn't have an individual relationship with every one of those customers. And so if the fintech company decides to move from that bank to another one, which can be enabled very easily through these partners, maybe those deposits actually aren't nearly as sticky as I thought they were. So it poses a ton of interesting questions in that respect. And then I think kind of going to the Goldman point, the other thing here that's pretty interesting is the more and more of these platforms that insert themselves into the process the less sort of direct oversight you have over these things, right? And so this is sort of the distinction between like third-party risk and fourth-party risk, which 
the OCC and the Fed and the FDIC just put out some new guidance around. Third-party risk would be, I'm Goldman Sachs, and I am working with this fintech company directly in order to enable them to offer some services. That fintech, from a regulator's perspective, is a third-party servicer to the bank and is subject to some sort of compliance and oversight and things that the regulators want that bank to do. However, if I'm Goldman Sachs and I work through Stripe, and then Stripe is the one that's working with those fintech programs who are then working with customers, we're further like disintermediating the risk, right? Now, those fintech companies are fourth parties, Stripe is the third party, and Goldman Sachs is the one who has to have multiple levels of oversight there. And from what I've heard, and Jason, I don't know if you've heard similar, I think there maybe have been some kinks that Stripe has been working out in terms of how they manage that fourth party risk on behalf of some of their banking as a service partners. So there, there seems to be some problems that are being kind of ironed out right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it anytime you're introducing another hop, there's more complexity. And no matter how many intermediaries you insert in there, at least the way the regulatory apparatus works now, you know, that regulatory liability rolls back to the bank. So even if it is Goldman to Stripe to a Stripe fintech, to the client of that fintech, at the end of the day, that rolls back to the bank partners, whether it's Goldman or the other bank partners Stripe uses, Evolve Bank and Trust and Celtic, yep. which will be not surprising names to people familiar with the space. And I mean, the same problem to a certain extent existed in this lineage relationship where Synapse is quite unique. And I did try to make an effort to draw that out and explain it in that Synapse has its own broker-dealer license, which it acquired relatively recently, I want to say something like late 2022. And that does let Synapse directly, under its own license, do things that other BAS platforms can't. However, it just because Synapse has that license does not indemnify their partner bank from any and all risks that Synapse or Synapse's fintech clients or their clients' clients are taking. Yeah. And it, it does definitely increase the complexity of ensuring everybody in that chain is doing the monitoring that they're supposed to do. And one last, and I'll get off my high horse, it's <laughs> very easy to go and buy a template of a compliance management system and all the policies and procedures that legally you're supposed to have to tick the box to say, I have an AML policy, I have a KYC policy. It's entirely different to instantiate those policies. And as our friend Natasha Cable would say, actually measuring to see if the programs are effective, which regulators increasingly do care about. And you can imagine doing that in a one-to-one -one relationship say, Bancorp to Chime versus some sort of four-party relationship is just an entirely different exercise. Yeah, it's absolutely right. I mean, just to put a final point on that, I was talking to a lawyer who works in the banking space and works with a lot of banks that are setting up banking as a service partnerships. And what he said that I thought was really interesting was he's like, the number of beautiful, just absolutely stunning contracts that cover everything and cover every contingency and are just perfectly written that sit at these banks that never, ever get like looked at again or operationalized from a systems perspective or checked over against from a policy perspective would sort of blow people's minds, right? And that's really the challenge is 
you can make yourself feel good about having the best possible contract, hiring the best lawyers, getting the best consultants to consult with you on how to set up these compliance programs. But if you don't actually do all of that work, and if you don't invest in that work and those people to do that, then none of it's going to matter. And again, kind of going back to Jason's point, all of this liability sits with the bank. If regulators are listening, we want you to know we've tried to make this point extraordinarily clearly. All of it sits with the bank. It's their responsibility. And it's just not going to be a good answer when you're talking to your regulator if you say anything other than, yep, nope, we know exactly what's going on. Here's the data. Here's what you need to see. And I think that's what we're evolving to, but there's a lot of bumps along the web. Indeed. Do you want to take us to our last topic? Yes, and we can hit this one relatively quickly. Wrote about it a bit in my newsletter, but a new niche neobank launched, which is always fun and a little bit unusual these days. It's called Roger, and it is a neobank or a digital bank for military members with a specific focus on new recruits to the military. So the idea is that if you're a young person, new recruit, maybe even under the age of 18, it's really difficult to set everything up before you report to basic training and before you get started in your military career. And one of the steps there that often gets rushed or isn't handled very well is the banking process and setting up direct deposit, opening a checking account, getting all of that set up. And then again, like you're going to go to a different place, you're going to move, eventually you might end up overseas. And the opportunities to kind of continually manage that can kind of quickly get away from you. And in particular, what it seems as though is that Roger is focused on those new recruits because a lot of the existing providers in the space, and there are certainly a lot of banks and credit unions that focus on the military, they seem to be a little bit maybe more focused on sort of older folks, more established members of the military who have different challenges, but aren't necessarily struggling with some of these initial sort of setup challenges. So Roger is very tuned to solving those problems. Interestingly, it is actually a digital spinoff of Citizens Bank of Edmund, which is a small community bank, fairly well known in fintech circles because they tend to be very innovative and sort of out there in terms of trying to represent what they're doing from a community banking perspective. Jill, their CEO, is awesome and really, really responsive if you ever want to talk to her. And I found that part of it to be really interesting because you don't see a lot of these niche neobanks being spun off or uh, sort of spun up by community banks. We did go through a phase a while back where the big banks were all doing their own digital spinoffs, and those were pretty much an abysmal failure across the board. But this I actually really like because a lot of the problems that I have with niche neobanks, I mean, I love niche neobanks. I cannot get enough of them. I think it's one of the greatest innovations ever in banking. But it's not super compatible with the way that a lot of VCs think about their return profile, right? Because it's challenging unit economics. It's a relatively small addressable market relative to someone like a Chime. And it's just hard to make work and to generate the type of return that most VCs, not all VCs, because I know I've heard from a few who disagree with this, but most VCs are not in love with that model and they're not really pouring a lot more money into it. So The idea of this model being able to sort of live on, enabled by community banks, enabled by credit unions, and in this particular case, enabled by Nimbus, which is a core banking provider that has a whole sort of business line set up to help community banks and credit unions launch these kind of digital spinoff brands, I really like and I'm kind of intrigued by. So I don't know, Jason, I I know you've been looking at this one as well. I think you're also a fan of niche neobanks generically. What do you think about this? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely want to caveat that I know very little about what it would mean to serve in the military or in the armed services and to be whatever, 17, 18 in joining. So it, it is hard to sort of put yourself in the shoe. I'm not super familiar with the needs that it is trying to serve, which I think is like an important clarification. I do think there's a couple of interesting things here. I mean, particularly that this is functionally like a digital brand extension of Citizens Bank of Edmund, which from like a, you know, you mentioned VCs, but from a funding and from a business model perspective is quite different than a lot of the niche neobanks that that we've probably talked about before, your Greenwoods, Cheeses, Daylights, etc. Yeah. which, I mean, one, you know, VC-backed equals pressure to show large TAM and quick growth, where I would assume being essentially a digital brand extension of an existing bank maybe has less of that pressure there and has like a very clearly defined community that it has a history of serving and wants to continue to serve in this new format. I mean, something that I think that I do know a little bit more about, the MLA, the Military Lending Act, like that's a perfect example of something that most people have probably never heard of that has a very real and significant impact on all active duty military members and their families' ability to use certain products with higher interest rates. And setting aside whether or not those are good products or bad products, sometimes people need to use them. I think that would potentially particularly be true at the younger end of the spectrum where access to credit is limited. So, I mean, this is an example of like, here's a very defined audience that it sounds like this institution already knows really well, moving it into sort of a more modern package with, you know, digital only distribution and examples of additional products you could expand into that would very specifically meet the needs of that audience. So I've been, let's say, skeptical of the interchange only business model of niche neo banks that are operating in a bank partnership model. Here, the economics are going to be different. And so I wish them nothing but the best. I will echo that and just say to kind of build on your point, I mean, I did not serve in the military, so I'm far away from this problem as well. But I think you hit on a lot of really good points. And I will say that much like other niche neobanks that I think have done a good job building the right products, the folks who are involved in Roger from Jill at Citizens Bank all the way through their advisory board, they're all folks who have served in the military, who have family who served in the military. So they are very close to the problem, understand it much better than Jason or I ever will. And the only other thing I'll mention that I thought was interesting was I, I did listen to a podcast that Jill did with American Banker a while ago when they first started talking about this well before they launched it. And one of the things they hinted at in it a little bit was the idea that if other banks that are focused on serving the military want to use this sort of front end and this experience that they've built, that they would be open to like licensing it out. And so I thought that was really interesting too, because in a way it would be sort of bank starts a fintech company and then that fintech company becomes sort of a infrastructure company that provides that service to other banks. And it's all wrapped up in, we want to serve this particular community. A large portion of that community is already being served by other banks that might benefit from this technology. A lot of those other banks operate in markets well outside of our own. So there's a very interesting kind of co-opetition 
model that's enabled by community banks kind of getting more into fintech and digital banking? And I'm fascinated by that as well. Should we get to our can't let it go? I'm excited about mine. Yes, I am excited about this as well. I know you have probably a slightly longer one, so I'll go really quickly and just say that I saw floating around on Twitter a projection from economists at Morgan Stanley that said that there's an expectation of a bit of a hangover and a dip in consumer spending in Q4 of this year, which is kind of unusual, actually, because Q4 is usually where a lot of shopping and other things happen. But their projection takes into consideration both the resumption of student loan payments, which is happening soon, as well as the fact that a number of very important pop culture events in the U.S. are now winding down. Barbie, Oppenheimer, Taylor Swift moving overseas, and Beyonce. And I have to say, first of all, like that whole parenthetical that was in this Morgan Stanley report is like the most American thing I've ever heard of in my life. And I will also say that, Jason, having gotten to experience Barbie, Oppenheimer, and Taylor Swift, I am actually definitely planning to be a part of this trend and trying not to spend quite so much money in Q4. So I don't know if you're going to be trying to stimulate the economy at all in Q4, but I, I definitely will be taking a bit of a break. I will try to step it up. I'm <laughs> traveling to the U.S. soon, so I'll, I'll try to spend some money, although it's not Q4 yet, but I'll see what I can do. We appreciate I, it. <laughs> I do like that Taylor, Beyonce, and movies are the main you know, macroeconomic drivers these days. I will try to keep my can't let it go short. Not entirely new, but some new details. Alex, imagine if a bank accidentally told its users to deposit funds into the wrong vault, didn't notice for a year, realized it had lost the keys in combination to that vault, couldn't open it, and then just stole some other users' funds to meet withdrawal requests. Would that be totally crazy and definitely criminal? Yes. That's essentially what Prime Trust which was a Nevada chartered trust institution primarily focused on facilitating crypto company transactions, basically did. So they had transitioned from a hardware wallet to Fireblocks, which is like a crypto service provider, accidentally told users to send their crypto to this old wallet address, only noticed when a user tried to withdraw more Ether than they actually had available, and I guess could not find, there's like a dongle, like a two-factor dongle. And then as a backup, they had physical steel, acid-proof steel plates with a passphrase etched into it, which they also couldn't find. My question that I really want to know is like, did they just throw the stuff away? Like they were moving offices and they're like, oh, we don't need these things anymore because we're on fire blocks. And like, lo and behold, they had like $74 million worth of crypto on some box they can't access anymore. Oh my God. Ultimately, so yeah, they stole users' funds to buy Ether to meet the withdrawal requests. And then ultimately, the Nevada regulator forced them into receivership because they were insolvent. The whole thing is like utterly insane. Bananas. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, the thing I find so funny about the crypto thing is it's like, this is going to work great. All you need is this wallet address that's just a string of letters and numbers that's not in any way going to be like something you'll remember. And then you need to have this seed phrase and it's never going to change. It can't be changed. Like if you lock yourself out of a vault, there are people who can break you into a vault. This literally like there is no way to get into these things. I remember this is a funny conversation from a while ago, but I remember talking to Peggy 
Mango, who's now at Chase, and we were talking about crypto stuff. And she's like, yeah, I got some crypto. I've been kind of experimented with it. And she's like, yeah, I just put in uh, my will to the kids. Like, if something happens to me, call Mike Dudas and he'll know what to do. And it's like, that's honestly about the best you can do is just like, I wrote this down somewhere. I told someone this thing. Like, I buried it in the backyard. Go find it. Like, it's wild. It is completely insane. I had one last small anecdote and then I'll let you go about your day. I had like a very, very, very small amount of Ether on BlockFi when it went bankrupt. Not enough to care or be upset about, but enough to be amused every time my mom, because I use that mailing address, gets a thick stack of documents from Kroll, who's their like claims agent for the bankruptcy. I mean, it has truly been a bananas process. And again, what is this supposed to be fixing? I don't know. I'm trying to keep an open mind on this stuff, man. But when there are companies that have trust in their name, that it's not even so much the stealing user funds, because we see that in traditional finance as well, but the losing the keys and not being able to find them. Yeah, like, oh, these steel plates, we don't need those anymore. Let's just toss them out. Like, this is crazy. I cannot wait for the movie version. Oh, God. Well, I mean, just get ready, because when my kids are like, sort of in prime movie watching age, there'll be like, I don't know, 15 movies and documentaries on all the crazy shit that happened in crypto. And they'll be like, what was 2020 like? And I'll be like, I can't explain it in words. Like if you weren't there, it's impossible to explain. We will have to leave it here, I think. (laughs) All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you to our listeners as always. We will be back at it next month, perhaps with a special guest, a little tease. And until then, Jason, thanks so much. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.